Okay. Okay. So um, I'm just going to continue with the, with the brief overview of the Torah portion. And he goes on to understand the next, the next, uh, this next commandment. We need to understand that in the Torah, there are two type of firstborns. There's one which is called Peterechem, the opening of the uterus. From that perspective, the firstborn depends on the mother, not the father. So if a person like Jacob had more than one wife, Reuven was the firstborn of the wife Leah, and Joseph was the firstborn of the wife Rachel. So when it comes to matters in which we look at the firstborn as the opening of the uterus, they will both be firstborns. However, when it comes to the laws of inheritance, the firstborn is not the opening of the uterus, but the firstborn of the father. That's how it works when it comes to inheritance. Thus, the Torah is warning you that if you have more than one wife and you had a firstborn from one wife and then you have a firstborn from the second wife, when it comes to the laws of inheritance, you cannot decide that this wife I don't like and I don't want to support her and her kids. They shouldn't get my wealth. So I'm going to change it to the other wife, which leads me to a parenthetic, a parenthesis. Oof. And that is that the laws of inheritance is very unique. When it comes to the laws of money, an agreed upon contract is the law. However, when it comes to inheritance, it's actually not considered monetary because once a person dies, the money is not his to give away. Once a person dies, the God and the Torah dictates how one is to give inheritance. Now, this actually became an issue as the generations went on, civilization changed, values changed, the protection of women changed. And therefore, a lot of men, they wanted to know how do we change this? For example, inheritance goes to the son, not to the daughter and not to the wife. Because the understanding was that the daughters would get married and they would inherit it, inherit with their husband from his father. Now, what happens if someone doesn't want that? Number one, he doesn't want the mother to have to live off the children. He wants her to have the money. Or he wants all his daughters to have equally with his sons. He cannot do that in a sense of inheritance. And rabbis literally, literally worked very hard to understand how can someone be able to make sure that everything goes to his wife and when his wife passes away, everything should go equally to all the children and so forth and so on. The solution they came up with is practiced till this very day and it's actually very important to do this right. I have a civil will and I had to make sure that it was done according to Jewish law. And that is that you don't 
bequeath anything. Rather, you create an opening line to the document that says that one hour prior to my death, I hereby give a gift retroactively. That means once the person dies, retroactively, an hour before his death, he already gave gifts as he chose fit. And therefore, it's no more a law of inheritance because while he is alive, it is his money and he's allowed to do whatever he wants. So I'm just putting it out there. If anyone has made a will and if they didn't make a will, absolutely make a will. There's nothing to worry about. Quite the contrary, according to Jewish law, it is considered a good luck for long life, but definitely make a will. Do not put your children through the problems if you don't make a will, not the problems with the state, not the problems amongst each other. Go ahead and do it. And just make sure that you work also with a rabbi who will give you the legal wording for the documentation so that it will be upheld in Jewish law. The, the, what you don't want to do is have the last act that you're going to be doing on this world before you face your creator, not to be in accordance to the laws that your creator has mandated to you. So that's just in parentheses because we got into the laws of inheritance here. Moving right along. The next commandment is a commandment which a very, very great rabbi, the Rogachova, said that it's very difficult to understand. It goes against all the doctrines that we know elsewhere in Torah. I also want to tell you that according to the Talmud, there's an opinion that says differently. You'll always have two opinions. But according to the Talmud, this has never happened in the history of the Jewish people. And this is called the laws of a rebellious son. Now, the laws of a rebellious son is not a child who's disrespectful and doesn't behave. That's not what this law is about. This law is specific about him picking up the habits that he will not be able to sustain without stealing and murder. Namely, it talks specifically about an amount of raw meat and raw wine that he consumes. When the parents see this, the parents have the biblical obligation to bring this child to the courthouse and tell them, our son is rebellious and does not listen. And again, it means specifically about those two laws and the law is that the child is put to death. Now, why did I tell you that all the sages say that they cannot understand this law? First of all, the reasoning for the law is that he will in the future murder, so we're going to kill him now. That is against Jewish law. According to Jewish law, you cannot, you cannot go ahead and kill someone for what you know he or she is going to do, number one. Number two, 
the whole dynamics that specifically about eating raw meat and a certain amount and drinking raw wine a certain amount it's all beyond the understanding and our sages say so but i want to just parenthetically give you my own personal insight to this and it's just for whatever it's worth it's my own my own gleaning of compassion from this Torah portion. So we know that many a times in the mystical teachings, when we have a commandment of a father and children, a mother and children, we re immediately refer to it as God is the parent and we are the child. I find it unbelievable that even as this child is going to be sentenced for doing horrific things, the wording that the father says is, our son. I find that very empowering to know that regardless of what we do, regardless of the cause and effect that we force God to put upon us, God will always, until our last breath, refer to us as his child. I find that very empowering and just wanted to share that with you. Again, my own little thought and I just wanted to share that with you. Okay, and now you have a whole slew of verses that just run through so many commandments. I'll try to do some justice. So the law is that, you know, we just spoke about a capital punishment. The law is that capital punishment, the person for certain, one of the capital punishments, the person is hung. Now, it says over here that you have to hang him right before sunset and take him down immediately for sunset. Watch again what the verse says. Kikilalas elokim, because it is the curse, the disgrace of God that is hanging. And our sages say, why is it the disgrace of God? This person did something, and according to law, to be, to be sentenced to capital punishment, you had to be warned. You have to do it within X amount of minutes that you were warned. You have to do it intentionally. We have to know that when you did it, you weren't suicidal. I mean, it, 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 the fact that this guy was sentenced to death really makes a statement that this person really rebelled against God. And yet we're referring to him as the disgrace of God that he is hanging. So our sages tell us, go back to the verse that says that God made us in his image and likeness. And from that perspective, it gives us an unbelievable parable, which again points out God's relationship, compassion, and unconditional love, even to a sinner who has, so to speak, forced God's hand to have the retribution even of the death penalty. The sages say that there was a king who had a twin, and the twin became a crook and a murderer. And the king, and finally he was caught, and he was sentenced to death, and he was hung. And the king heard a little child who didn't realize that this is the identical twin of the king saying, oh my God, daddy, look, the king is hanging. And the king immediately said, take him down so I don't go through any more shame. 
God is saying that when a human, regardless of what kind of sinner he or she is, actually a he when it comes to hanging, you should know that this person is made in my image. He's my twin. And therefore, be careful that you don't disrespect him. Anything that you don't have to because it's me you're disrespecting. Okay? And now let's move along to some other, other interesting uh, laws. So, you know, um, cross-dressing and all this stuff has become a big issue in our society. So I just want you to know that there's a verse here which prohibits cross-dressing. It does not allow a man to wear a woman's clothing nor a woman to wear a man's clothing. Again, I am not talking about the individual. I am talking about the action. Now, another interesting law. There's a law that says that if you want to take the chicks, the eggs from under a bird, you cannot put the mother bird through the pain of seeing you tell, take its offspring away. Rather, you need to first shoo away the mother bird and then, and only then, can you take the offspring. Um, also, interesting, I want to just point out some things. Um, there's an, again, I can't go through every law. It's going gonna, it's gonna to take way too long. But I want to just point out some interesting things. There is a law that you are not allowed to wear a garment that has wool and linen in it together. Biblically speaking, it's only if it's woven together. Rabbinically speaking is if there's any such thing, any wool in, I'm sorry, any linen in a wool suit. One of the major issues that do take place, you should know, is that many 100% wool suits will have linen linings for the collar. Just an example. So this is a modern day issue. There are people who that's what their profession is or one of their many professions, they will add, you'll bring them the suit, they will actually check it for you to make sure that there's no mixture of wool and linen. Now, simply speaking, this is a, a statute, which means that we don't know any logical reasoning to it. However, I wanna share with you a mystical insight that I came across and it says as follows because the world was created with four different categories, which is the inanimate, the plant, the animal, and the human. Now, because wool comes from the animal kingdom and linen comes from the, and linen comes from the, the uh, plant kingdom, so according to Kabbalah, you shouldn't wear both of them together. Just giving you a Kabbalistic insight, I can't even tell you that I truly understand that because the first thing that comes to mind is what's about silk made from an animal? Why can you wear that with linen? I'm just sharing you the teachings, okay? Now, another thing we talk about is, again, in protecting the woman from the husband letting out any rumors about her. And to understand this, I just want to share with you, I think we spoke about this previously, that in the olden days, the marriage between a woman and a man was broken into two parts, which sometimes could be taking place a decade apart. Uh, apart. In the olden days, they would very often do the chuppah, which means that 
he would give her the ring and say, we are, she's betrothed to him. So basically, all the laws of a married woman is applicable upon her, other than that she did not consummate her marriage, and therefore she doesn't have to have a head covering. However, she is considered married in the sense that if, God forbid, there's an affair, the woman and the man are both liable for having an affair with a married woman. Now, that, like I told you in the olden days, I'm not even talking about that far ago. I'm taking you, for example, to a story I know of 17 generations ago, the morale of Prague. They did that. They went when he was still a yeshiva boy. The two families made the yeshidach and they made the chuppah. He went back to yeshiva to learn and she went back home to whatever. She was young and he was young. So later, a decade later was when they actually consummated the marriage and became full-fledged husband and wife in that sense. The law is concerned that what happens if the, if the boy 10 years later decided that he has a new flame in his life and he doesn't want to marry her. So he's going to spread a rumor. I just want you to know she wasn't a virgin and she was a virgin when we, when we made the chuppah. So he's letting out rumors on her. So there's whole laws on how to deal with that. By the way, you should know that even though such a damage is considered monetary because we're going to fine him if he lied, you should know that the courthouse that will deal with this is actually going to be the higher court because if it is true, it becomes a case of a capital punishment. So it can go either way. Okay, okay, let's just go ahead and do, let's go a little further. Um, you can look for other things. Uh, yeah, I want to share with you a very interesting law. So the law is that when the Jewish soldier went to war, the law was that he had to carry a special shovel with him. And I want to share with you how deep this is. The shovel was because if he's out there in the world, in the war, in the desert or whatever, and obviously, you know, he has his body and his body has its bodily movements. So the law is that in the Jewish camp, where they're not going to have restrooms, you can't just have bodily, body secretions all over the place. So the law says, why? Because God is in your midst. And therefore, it tells you you have to have a shovel in order to cover it and bury it. Based on this, I just want to share with you, for those of you who see my mims in Instagram or on Facebook, the mim for today was exactly about that. The heart of modesty, you should know, is being conscious of God's presence, which is the law which is the reason why the law says that modesty is even when you're alone in your house, even when you're in your restroom, you should always be conscious that God is here. And thus the verse tells us specifically, keep your camps holy because God is there. A whole different mindset to modesty. Okay, let's go ahead and go, go further. Um, it talks about the laws of, of going to war. We're going to talk about that in a moment. It talks about the law of 
how if it's not an obligatory war, which we'll talk about in a moment, there are exemptions from the army. A person who just got married and never consummated, a person who built a house and never lived in it, a person who planted a vineyard and never had his first crop. And the law talks about because he's going to be preoccupied. A person who's engaged to be married and is out on the war field and is thinking, if I die, another man will take this woman, my wife to be, that's a preoccupation. And then there's a fourth category, which says someone who is faint-hearted and is afraid of war. Now, there's an argument among the sages. Some say it's literally someone that can't handle war. And some say, no, it means spiritually, someone who feels that he's not protected by God because he's a sinner. Those people may leave. And again, I want to point out to you, this Torah portion is so full of compassion for the sinner. Our sages say that the only reason why we let the newlywed, the new house owner, and the new vineyard owner go back is so that the sinner can go back without being shamed. If he was the only one that went back, then everyone would know, ah, look who, look who's going back. Look who's afraid that he's not protected by God. I knew he was a sinner. But now because there are so many different categories going back, they won't know. Maybe he just got married. Maybe he built a house. Maybe he planted a vineyard. So God let so many other people go back just so that the sinner should not have to face additional shame. It's enough his inner shame that he feels that he's not protected by God. Okay, another thing very interesting. God tells us to remember how bad gossip is. Remember that Miriam, the sister of Moses, was so righteous, so holy, and yet she was punished because she gossiped about her brother Moses to her brother Aaron. On top of that, she didn't even gossip for the sake of gossip, but for the sake of trying to bring peace between Moses and his wife because his wife was frustrated that as a prophet, he separated himself from her from the ways of mankind. And thus, it wasn't even for the intention of, of gossip. And she was so righteous and so holy. And nevertheless, she, was, she received the punishment of leprosy for gossip. We actually say this verse every single day to remember how, how bad gossip is. Okay, and then let's go ahead and uh, move on to, um, I'm going to take us to the, to the closing, even though really there's so much more, but I want to just take you to the, oh, I'm going to tell you what, what the one part before the closing. It is really amazing that God tells us that you should know that the reason you were taken out of Egypt, and if you want to have long life, make sure that you don't have any non-correct weights in your house. In other words, in the olden days, not that long ago, I actually saw such skills and I saw them being used. How did you weigh if it's a pound of fruits when you sold it? You had metals that were heavy, like a pound, and you knew. And that's the way you weighed it, and you knew. But what happens if you siphon off a little piece of it, so it weighs less than a pound, 
but you're going to put it on and say, well, this is a pound. I mean, you took more than a pound. You have to pay more. So the Torah tells you how bad that is. Be honest. And then the closing portion is about remembering what the Amaleks did. So just give you a brief insight on this, and then we'll focus on the main topic that I prepared. So Amalek was a grandson of Asaph. Amalek, when the Jews left Egypt and everyone knew of the plagues and everyone knew of the mighty Egypt crumbling, everyone knew of the splitting of the sea, no one dared to touch the Jews. They, for no reason, the Jews weren't going to their land. The Jews they knew weren't heading to their land. And nevertheless, they came out to the desert to attack the Jews. And their point was, we don't want the Jews to be untouchable. So even though they lost the war, but they did make it that it's, un, it's no more untouchable. Now, in, in plain and simple language, we talk about a Amalek as chutzpah. We talk about a Amalek as apathy. There's another interesting teaching about a Amalek. And that is that the word Amalek is also connected to the word Malika. The word Malika means to decapitate. In Kabbalah and Hasidus, what that means is that the mind is not connected to the heart. The mind is learning. The mind is understanding. The mind is appreciating. But the person doesn't take the intimate work of making it personal of making it about him, his God, her life. Yeah, it's nice, Judaism, very academic, very beautiful, or whatever it may be. So that is the curse of Amalek, to have the, the spiritual decapitation between what the mind is grasping, not being able to evolve into the sensitivity of the heart. So I can study all day long about how amazing charity and caring and love is all about. And then it just doesn't, yeah, that, that's very interesting. That's intellectually very stimulating. I get it. I enjoy it. But the next time I'm going to go out of Walgreens, I'm going to see a guy, um, you know, ask me for anything, you know, help me, please. I'm just going to like, whatever, and just walk away. So that's Amalek. With that being said, I want to take us back now to the opening of the Torah portion. And I want to share with you a very beautiful insight from Hasidus. So number one, the verse says, when you go out to war, the word is al oivecha, not neged oivecha. Al oivecha means upon. You're coming from above to below. And simply speaking, what is the meaning of this verse? It means that the, the, the Jewish people, when they went to war, when Moses sent them to war, when Joshua sent them to war, they shouldn't look at their enemy in relative to themselves. That means like, oh, wow, they're stronger than us. Oh, we're never going to win this one. But rather, look at them from the perspective of God. And that's why in last week's Torah portion, it warns us that you're going to see a horse and you're going to see a chariot. You shouldn't become afraid. And our sages say a horse, a chariot. That's not how armies work. Why is it singular? So the verse says that what God's telling you is, look at it compared to me. 
compared to me, I'm the one that's battling this war for you. So from that perspective, they're all like just one horse. Don't be worried about the might that you see. That might is comparative to you when you're dealing with self-reliance. But if you're connected to me, then understand it in comparison to me. And on that, I want to share with you a very interesting saying that I heard from my uncle once. My uncle in, in, he today lives in Israel. He lived in Russia and then he lived in Alabama. He was in different Jewish communities to build the Jewish community. And one day he was going through financial hardship. You know, uh, the fundraising job isn't, isn't easy for a lot of people. And he's sitting there with an appointment with an affluent person who's able to help him. But of course he's nervous. You know, not everyone who could <laughs> does. You know, to be able to be charitable, it's not just, you know, there's two things you need, a bank account and a heart. And some have one and not the other. And that isn't a good, uh, a good solicitation. So he's sitting in the front office, worried about all his, oh my God, if this doesn't work out, how am I going to pay this? Now, how am I going to pay that? And all of a sudden, when he walks into the office of this person that he's about to solicit, he sees, you know, like they have embroidery, these sayings in a frame. He sees this embroidered saying in a frame that says, stop telling God how big your problems are and start telling your problems how big God is. That is precisely the opening of this verse. When you're going to war, you go to war upon your enemies because it's not your war. And I want to add on in parentheses that if it is your war, then you shouldn't be going to war. And what I mean to say is, if this is about you, then question why are you going to war? But if this is a spiritual war, a religious war, and those are very dangerous words, so I'm going to refer to it only as the biblical wars of old, um, then you need to know that if it's a biblical war, it's God's war. If it's God's war, stop looking at how strong they are compared to you and look compared to God. Now, with that said, I want to make it practical in 2020. What does this mean in 2020? So I want to tell you how the first Lubavitcher Rebbe in his book of teachings called Lakuta Torah describes this war. He says that the war is like this. Every person is gifted with the power of desire, the power of passion, and the power of love. Now what happens is that this power of passion, love, desire, when we're not appropriate with our thoughts, speech, and action, it gets hijacked rather than living in a theocentric, selfless world, it now starts living in a egocentric, selfish world, instead of the theocentric, selfless world. And thus, this powers of the human soul is taken captive in war. And thus, he gives now a whole new insight, what does it mean that we should look at our enemy upon our enemy, and in this teaching, Upon means look up. If everything comes from God, is God is everything and everything is God. 
and everything comes from God. And Job has already taught us very clearly that from the mouth of above, there comes no evil. Thus, we need to say that even evil in its source came from good. Only that the way it descended through contractions and concealments in order to give us freedom of choice, we have the capacity to take that which was originally good and make it prisoner of that which is evil. Now, let's be more practical here. So we have a godly soul and we have an animalistic soul. And when we say animalistic, we mean it in the simple sense. The animal is incapable of having higher intelligence, understanding what it means to be theocentric. An animal's life primarily works around three things. Eat, don't be eaten, and procreate to keep the species alive. Now, parenthetically speaking, if anyone is going to eventually watch this and they have pets and they, they're like getting upset with what I'm saying, Please, I'm not here to offend anyone, but I will tell you that it is, in my humble opinion, according to what I learned, inappropriate to apply human traits and human relationships to an animal. My own pet peeve, I don't do well when I see an owner tell its dog, come to mommy. I've actually heard that, and the first time I heard that, I was like, whoa, what just happened? But We'll put that away for another blog. For right now, the animal aspect is that its greatest instinct is that of survival. Thus, we refer to it as egocentric, not because it's evil, but because it is driven by the preservance of self. And thus, the lion is not evil, in its hunting for a meal. It's very simple. Either you die and I eat and live, or you live and I don't eat and I die. And it is amazing for someone like me that is consistently watching animal videos. I, I really have an affinity to it. And, you know, <laughs> I used to make deals with my kids. If you wanna watch Spider-Man, you're not gonna have to first watch this with me pick up something about nature, and then go ahead and watch that. And, and Maimonides says, to love God, you can do it either through studying Torah or through studying nature. And one of the most beautiful natures to, to study is the animal kingdom. It is amazing that you will see in the savannah all type of animals, predator and prey, coexisting in peace because the animals know the prey knows that the predator is not on the hunt. And if it's not on the hunt, it is safe. So the point here is that there is no that beautiful scene in Titanic where the boy tells the girl, you stay on the raft and I'm going to give my life for you. It doesn't happen that way. And again, I'm not going to get into all the videos and the scientific stuff that I am aware of how animals actually actually gave their life to save their, their owners. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about in the general steam 
of Hasidus, the way we understand animals that have not been affected by human beings, it is very simple. It is kind, no maliciousness at large, and it's only about survival. That is the epitome in the teachings of egocentric. My survival is the center of all. Now, this then later, for the human animalistic soul, not the animal, but for the human animalistic soul, when it's left unchecked, this evolves into narcissism, where now it's not just no more survival. It's I am the center of the universe, and everything is for my taking and for my service. So what happens is that this power of love, desire, and passion is actually schlepped down into its lowest form and a very ungodly form. However, where did the power of passion, love, and desire come from? So I'm going to give you the mystical answer to it. When you learn Ezekiel chapter 1, he gives you there the vision. He had a prophetic vision. He's one of two that had the same prophetic vision of how the chariot of God looks. It's called the vision of the chariot, the prophecy of the chariot, and it refers to God's throne. Now, obviously, what he saw was all spiritual dimensions. There is no throne up there, as we know. But he talks about clearly how on the throne he saw four faces, and three of them were animals. He saw the face of a lion, he saw the face of an ox, and he saw the face of an eagle. And in Kabbalah, it explains to us that what he really saw was huge, huge concepts of angels. For example, the kindness, the one on the right, the lion, and it's interesting why it's called kindness. We just spoke about it as a predator, asked and answered in Kabbalah, but not for right now. So that really refers to the archangel Michael, the angel of kindness. The ox, which is over here referred to as the left side, represents the archangel of Gabriel. And then the eagle, which is about compassion, is the, arch, is the archangel of Raphael. So we're really talking about the greatest troops of angels. Now, the animalistic soul is actually an offspring of the, of the angels, which in Kabbalah is called Behema Rabbah, the major animals. And there's a reason why angels are referred to spiritually as animals. But be it as it may, just to keep our, our train of thought straight without getting off to a bunch of things, and of course, after I finish my monologue, I invite any of you to ask me questions about anything I'm saying. But I just want to keep this going straight here. So the animal soul is, so to speak, an offshoot of an offshoot of an offshoot of these great angels. And therefore, just like the animal has greater passion than the human, within the human itself, the power of passion lies in our animalistic side and not in our human side. Now, with this being said, because there were so many contractions and concealments from the divinity 
to the offspring and the offshoot and the offshoot and the offshoot, the way it it manifested itself in the physical world where divinity is abstract. So we have the freedom of choice to say no to God. Now, by the way, parenthetically speaking, it's amazing that teens think freedom of choice means, okay, I can choose, I can do it, I won't have any effects. No, the fact that you can choose to sin doesn't mean that there's not going to be retribution, but it means that an angel, it's impossible for an angel to sin. It doesn't have that power of choice. The human being, because there's been so many contractions, concealments, and evolutions, we have such a minuscule consciousness of divinity and God's presence that we really think that we're going to choose whether we're going to do or not do what God told us to do. So because there's so many contractions and concealments in this evolution from the infinite to the, fi to the finite, from the spiritual to the physical, therefore, because of that, the passion can go wrong. Now, what is the passion of the angels? So you'll look in your prayers and you'll see exactly what the passion is. It says over there, in right before the Shema Yisrael, we go ahead and we read two blessings. And in the first blessing, we talk about the angels. And what do we talk about the angels? How they praise God. For example, most of you know the verse, Kadosh, Kadosh, Kadosh. Where does that verse come from? Who calls God holy, holy, holy? It's not the humans. It's the angels. And we're repeating what the angels say. And we repeat it in their name. And thus, I want to just show you what it says here. It talks about the angels, right? And it says that God who creates ministering angels and whose ministering angels all stand, we're going to skip further, and all of them open their mouths in holiness and purity with song and melody and bless and endure, glorify and revere, hallow and ascribe sovereignty to the name of the Almighty. Let's go further. And with joyous spirit, with pure speech and sacred melody, all exclaiming in unison with awe and, with the, and declaring in reverence, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And then we go after that. And the Ophanim and the holy chayot, which are different type of angels. And also, watch this, with a mighty sound, rise toward the seraphim, another group of angels, and facing them all for praise and say, Blessed be the glory of the Lord from its place. Now, why did I read this to you? Because in Kabbalah it says, the only reason why in this world there exists the concept, the phenomenon of having passion, desire, love, is only from, and I'm going to use the words it uses, the sweat of those fiery angels in their passion, desire, and yearning to become one with God. So the entire existence of any type of desire, passion, yearning, and love exists in our physical world as a reflection of that which exists in the spiritual realms. And over there, it's all about holiness, selfliness, selflessness and theocentric. However, when it comes down to our world, we can direct our passion, pleasure, love, desire in either direction through our thoughts, speech, and action.
if we allow ourselves to obsess about money, we will become passionate about money. Our desire will be money. Our love will be money. And so too it is with anything else. And so too it is with fear. I'm going to tell you an interesting story. The Rebbe's heart doctor, Dr. Ira Weiss, he should live and be well, he should have a full shalema. He once asked the Rebetzin right before the high holidays because the Rebbe had to go through tests because of his heart condition. It all took place in the Rebbe's office or the Rebbe's home, all done privately. And he happened to have a conversation with the Rebetzin and he asked the Rebetzin, is your husband, the Rebbe, afraid of pain? And she answered him. She said, my husband is not afraid of pain, but he is very afraid of the high holidays that are coming up. That means that this experience of the emotion of fear will be directed and manifested in what we have our thoughts, our speech, and our actions focus on. So if we're going to focus about our own physical being, then yes, our fear will be deathly fear of shame, deathly fear of pain, deathly fear of poverty, deathly fear of homelessness, so forth and so on. But if we can control our minds and to realize that our greatest fear is not what's going on with our physicality, but our relationship with God, then that's where our desire, our passion, and our love will be. Thus, let's go back to the verse now. The verse says, when you go out to war, the war should be upon your enemy. What does that mean? The first thing is that you should get to know your enemy and not know it as it exists down here, but to know where it originally comes from. To understand that your enemy is something beautiful that went wrong. And I'm going to share with you. In the process of addiction recovery, there is an amazing process of steps. In step number four, we need to understand our character defects, and our pluses. Now, what is a character defect? A character defect, if you are taken through the steps right, you will learn very quickly that a character defect is a godly trait that was hijacked and taken to the wrong place. The process of these steps, of the 12 steps, is to ask God to help free these godly character traits, which are God's gift to us, from the imprisonment that we brought them into. That is what's going on in this opening verse. In this opening verse, we're asking you, myself, every one of us, we're asking us to stop hating our character defects and to stop hating ourselves because of our character defects, because we realize that our character defects in true essence are the greatest gifts of God. 
what makes humans humans powers emotions feelings drives and then what happens is that when we realize what it truly is nothing more that we dragged it into an imprisonment of obsessive thoughts and speech and actions then we know what the war is truly all about the war is not to kill passion the war is to stop obsessively passionately talking about things which are only self-centered and self-serving and now i want to take you to the next verse and when you go out to this war you're going to find a beautiful woman who is this beautiful woman now we know that this beautiful woman are the character traits free of being imprisoned as defects and all of a sudden you're free to use the greatest human emotions for where they belong selflessly towards god towards your family towards your fellow people and then what does it say and you will make her your wife what does that mean what that means is that this will become who you are who you're married to who you're committed to and then let's go to the next verse and in the next verse it says that you should shave her head and you should cut her nails what does that mean in the spiritual dimension in the spiritual dimension here is the representation of an overflow of intellect i want to share with you as a very simple saying analysis to the point of paralysis shave that off nails is an overflow of emotions in an intensity that blinds us paralyzes us and cripples us cut those nails off and then it says you should let her cry over her father and mother for a month in kabbalah and hasidis that refers to the month that we're in right now we're in the month of elul the month of compassion, the month of love, the month of the 13 petal rose, the month that brings us to the high holidays. And in that month, you should be able to cry over the father and mother. I'm gonna go back for a moment to addiction recovery. You know, one of the, the, one of the things in addiction recovery that needs to be embraced, and it's not easy, is to realize that which you hate about yourself so much because of the addiction you realize that that was what kept you alive in a difficult childhood it's how you coped with a world that you didn't know how to cope with one of the things that it's very important and i'm talking about addiction because addiction recovery really has it spelled out in the 12 steps. But in truth, it applies to any change. We have to allow ourselves to mourn what used to work for us, even though it works for us no more now. And those who just think, oh, we're just going to change and move right on. I want to just give you an example. Let's not talk about addiction for a moment. Do you know how many times? There are psychological issues 
because let's say for argument's sakes, I'm going to tell you one, one case I, I read in a, in, a, in a book of psychology where it talks about getting past your past is the name of the book. It talks about a story in which a grown woman was suffering horribly, horribly. And in, in a therapy, in this specific therapy, it's a special type of therapy um, with eye movements, maybe some of you heard it, but either way, in this therapy, they took her back to the fact that she was in a truck on her birthday, when her, a pickup truck, when her father was driving her to a restaurant to get cake and there was an accident and the father got killed. And that explained all the details, I'm not gonna get into it, of what she was going through. So she went and she spoke to her mother and she asked her mother, I was in the truck when dad was killed? She said, the mother said, yeah. She says, mom, why don't we ever talk about this? Because when you came home, you got very quiet about it, very closed in. And I thought it's best, just let it be. You don't want to talk about it. There's no such thing. We need to respect our humanity of mourning, even over that which is not good. How much more so situations that really isn't our bad behavior. But if you really want to be able to let go of the past, we need closure. And to have closure, you got to be able to spend 30 days of crying. Of crying over that I have to give up being egocentric. And that is scary. Because does that mean I'm going to become a monk? I'm going to become all righteous? I'm going to become selfless? So now we have the totality of just these four verses and how amazing it is in our practical life with our inner war to understand that what we think is so ugly about us is really a beautiful woman in captivity and to be able to understand how she is in her very source truly beautiful. And how to free her from imprisonment is just to start taking somewhat of surrendering our thoughts, speech, and action of self-centeredness. And then slowly but surely to allow that beautiful woman to emerge and to realize that emotions are our greatest gift in our relationship to God and our relationship to others. And then from that sense, to be able to realize all that I hate about me is exactly the me I now want to marry. Because now, the toad turned into a prince. Now I realize what it really always was before it became bewitched. For whatever reason that in my life I had to go down that path in order to survive. Guys, that's all I have to say, thank you. I'm unmuting everyone.